Welcome to Man Reads Monday. I am Aaron Ventura. He is Jacob Rush. Let's get to work. Jacob, what are we working through today? Today we are starting Man of the House, a handbook for building a shelter that will last in a world that is falling apart. So Man of the House by C.R. Wiley. And we're going to be working through it pretty slow, right? So we're going to be hitting a chapter a week. Yeah, and I believe there's 12, 12 chapters in this book. And this is a book that um, I think I read probably a year or so ago, and I've yep. gone back to it. And I would put this book on my list of kind of read once a year mm. books. Uh, it's short, but it's also really uh, dense and inspiring. I think it's only like 130 some pages. Right. Um, and let me just read you the, the bio of C.R. Wiley. We've had him out here in Moscow for Grace Agenda, and I believe he's on the board or something at NSA. He has, he's some, he has some uh, he's he's uh, done some training, I think. Okay, on the board, yeah, for some sure. training over there. So, uh, who is C.R. Wiley or Chris Wiley? Uh, he's a pastor. He's the senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester, which is in Connecticut. He's written for Touchstone Magazine, Modern Reformation, Sacred Architecture, The Imaginative Conservative, and Front Porch Republic. His short fiction has appeared in the Mythic Circle, published by the Mythopoeic Society, and he has published young adult fiction with Canon Press, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, um, he has been a commercial real estate investor and a building contractor, and he has even taught philosophy to undergraduates. Uh, this, I think this is probably a little more dated bio. So he's got uh, a book with Canon Press called The Household and the War for the Cosmos, mm-hmm. which recently came out, which in some ways is actually a, I would say, a theological or philosophical prequel yeah. to Man of the House. And so uh, go to Canon Press and, and get that book. And then um, I'm friends with C.R. Wiley on Facebook, and he's a fun guy yeah. to, to follow and read. And you actually are in a Proverbs Zoom study well, with him. Yeah, so back when you know the COVID stuff happened and everybody was locked down in their house, um, pastors especially were trying to figure out ways that they could encourage their congregation. So uh, Chris Wiley started doing a YouTube channel for his church and started doing a Bible study through Proverbs because if there's any time we need a wisdom, yeah. it's during the middle of a pandemic. Uh, and then he sort of expanded from that and invited just his more broad connections. Yeah. If you wanted to sign up for a Zoom webinar to meet with them and to chat through Proverbs. Um, and it was really more of a discussion. Um, so I did that for, uh, I, I as things started to get busier, I wasn't able to attend to all okay. of them. But Is this still going? No, I th- it stopped about a month ago. Okay. Yeah, but we, they probably met nine times, okay. 10 times. So it was fun. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I met uh, C.R. Wiley when he came out for uh, Grace Agenda and he's a very peculiar guy. If you learn about his kind of background life story, uh, maybe I won't uh, give that away. We're, we're hoping to interview him uh, perhaps maybe when we hit the midway point in, in this book. So um, if you do have questions about uh, the book or want to join us, we'd encourage you guys to, to pick this up, uh, read it along with us, and then if you have questions, send them along and we hope to interview him in the future. So yeah. um, let's get into uh, this work. There's a, uh, what is it, a foreword by Leon J. Podols. I believe that's how you pronounce his name. And um, he kind of sets up what this book is about. He says things like, uh, Chris Wiley provides practical advice for a man to live up to his role as father. Without a father, there is no family. And so this is a very uh, patriarchal book uh, in that sense. And in the introduction, he's going to kind of set up why 
this book is even needed. So let's talk about the introduction. It's called How to Build a Survival Shelter. Uh, what were your initial impressions of the introduction? Yeah, so this um, basically sets off this uh, initial metaphor for his entire book. Right? So he introduces the idea of shelter. He talks about experts in the field giving that um, advice to somebody who's out in the wilderness. He says, you've got three weeks to get food, three days to find water, and three hours to make shelter. Yeah. Right? So if you're, if you're <laughs> out, in, if you ever find yourself in the woods, yeah. right, or in the desert, shelter is necessary because what's going to happen? When the sun goes down, wolves. Yeah. Or I guess. I guess it depends on where you well, are. Well, it really depends on where you are. It could be like rattlesnakes <laughs> or right. scorpions if you're in the desert. Have you ever seen The Revenant? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so when Montana. I think, yeah, when I think of shelter, I think of the movie The Revenant, which yep. is this, you know, ridiculous story. Leonardo DiCaprio's out there, and I don't know exactly where it's supposed to be in. You I know, think it is early Montana, America. Like crazy, like wilderness parts of Montana. Yeah. So that's like a survival story. They're trappers and there's snow and, you know, he sleeps in a horse. He pulls a, <laughs> he pulls an Empire Strikes Back. The Luke Skywalker. Yeah, cuts <laughs> open the horse. After, so it's a crazy one, but, you know, he's mauled by a bear. Right. And they got to build shelter to survive. And it's plain as to say, okay, why, okay, silly analogy, but why do we need shelter? Well, when you're in the wilderness. And his sort of introduction is to say especially our Western civilization, our American context, is reaching the point where he, he actually talks about it as like a slow death. Yeah. Right? So it's not... Like a drunkard. Right. He, you know, you kind of expect that guy to hit rock bottom, but he keeps on kicking. Um, that our civilization is coming to... Um, has, you know, terminal, and it's in its death throes. Yeah. And one of the things we're going to realize is that um, these protections that we thought that we had... Right and and this this illusion of safety that our society is very good at because we we do live in some measure of comfort. Yeah. Um, we may not always have, and so we're going to have a rude awakening one day if we're not actually prepared and ready for it. Yeah. So on page XIV, uh, he says uh, we built these things to shelter us, and he's referring to things like uh, banks. Uh, uh, what is too big to fail? These kind of uh, safety nets, these shelters for us, uh, automobile manufacturers, social security, uh, referring to uh, the bailouts that happened uh, when the, the oh, recession. Right. So uh, it says, in America, we built these shelters like banks, social security, etc. Some of these shelter us from personal responsibility. Some shelter us even from our own moral failings. And I was wondering, can you think of any other examples in our world of kind of shelters for us that protect us from taking responsibility or even protect us from our own sins. Yeah. So, I mean, the big one, I think, which has so many different sub, um, uh, what, subsets is, is government, right? Uh, things like welfare. Things, basically, we, we talked about a little bit in our last book conversation, things which sort of take the pressure off of you mm -hmm. to do the hard work of either working. So we think about our, our COVID-19 crisis um, where the government was giving sort of one small business loans, which on the surface you're going, oh, that's really great. We're glad that the government is doing that. Or stimulus packages, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, this is, we need money to get through this pandemic. Well, what you found is that when there's any sort of handout like that, yeah. Um, 
you're going to have people who are genuinely blessed by it, who have a good head on their shoulders, but you're also going to have people who are going to game the system. Mm-hmm. You're going to, oh, well, why would I go get a job if um, I can... Unemployment pays more. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, so unemployment pays more than minimum wage at McDonald's. So what get, you know... Yeah. Should I stay at my house and, you know, kick back and relax and get a paycheck? Or should I go work at McDonald's? Yeah. So things like that. And then I think there are even other ways, um, even our own kind of systems and communities where we, in the church even, where we can take responsibility off of, mm-hmm. um, say, you have a, um, you basically take responsibility off of, like, husbands or fathers to... The youth group. Exactly, or, yeah. yeah. So you take responsibility off of parents to do the disciplining work of raising their children. Yeah. You sort of outsource it to, you know, the hip youth pastor and then... Or the government schools. Right. And then, oh, wow. See, see what happens. They yeah. didn't actually keep their end of the bargain. Yeah, I think the government schools is also... That's one I didn't think about. Uh, that is totally a shelter that tries to... Uh, so it's packaged, it's sold to you as this free thing, even though we, pr- we pay for it via mm-hmm. property taxes and, and other things. Yeah. Uh, so it's something that we are all paying for whether we want to or not and we have a very we would say we have a very lame product so it's the reason why a lot of private or religious schools or charter schools even exist is because it seems like everyone agrees the public schools are a mess and so their answer is we need to fund them more right so right now we're in this throw of defund the police and and they wanted to well let's fund education with this you know let's pay right. teachers etc and i'm all for funding education but the question is you know who's who's paying for that is that a lawful jurisdiction for them and i think of uh, an example in the church that would be i think a a good kind of outsourcing or specializing of shelter right. and that would be the role of deacons so yeah. Uh, the apostles, they say, you know, we shouldn't, it is not right. It's actually not right for them to give up uh, the word of God and prayer to serve tables. So they appoint deacons to Mm. do this work. And so this is a work in a a community where they're saying, all right, we need to have some organization, some shelter to protect these widows. And then there's, there's also rules that Paul gives for whether a widow can ever be, you know, enrolled right. uh, uh, and receive this kind of help. So uh, one maxim that people need to memorize and internalize is that you are going to get less of what you tax and more of what you subsidize. Mm-hmm. And if you put a tax in any way on things that um, uh, that on things that will disincentivize or de-incentivize <laughs> taking responsibility, right? Then you're going to have more and more irresponsibility. Exactly. And if you encourage people, if you incentivize people to take responsibility, and we would say, uh, in many ways, a free economy, you know, not without, not with bribery and corruption, but a free economy is going to be the kind of thing that creates healthy, responsible citizens. Mm-hmm. And a lot of our shelters, uh, like Social Security, we're looking at and wondering how how is the the budget going to balance there. Right. It's only a matter of time before social security fails or we need to find some other creative solution. And as Christians, so I'm I'm exempt from social security as a minister. I was able actually to get out of it, which is a great blessing. Yeah. So I'm not taxed social security, but I also now have to set up my own safety net for if something happens to me. So I have I have used the money 
that I would be taxed via Social Security to buy my own in, uh, insurance policy disability mm. uh, retirement for the future. And even if you just look at like Dave Dave Ramsey, he, he'd say he'd say you know this is a no brainer. If every American could do what I can do, uh, they should. But I have to have I have to claim a religious ex- exemption right. for it. And so if you are a minister, you, you should totally do it because <laughs> it will uh, help you out a lot. Right. And I think the principle that is sort of setting this whole up this whole thing up is again the borrower is the slave to the lender mm-hmm. in any sort of capacity, whether yeah. that's financial or whether it has to do with the responsibilities to educate or shelter or defend. Um, and he's basically saying, we've reached a place in the Western society which, one, we don't know how to, as men, right? So he's, he's addressing particularly men, man of the house, uh, in this book. But even uh, we've created these faulty shelters. Mm-hmm. So we've, we don't know how to build the, sh- the personal household basic structures yeah. of protection and shelter and we've outsourced them to other ones that are going to eventually corrupt and attack and threaten yeah. the things that we should be protecting. Yeah. So this next section right after he says, okay, there's these shelters we've built and many of them are going to fail and in some ways it's a good thing that they fail, but we need to be prepared for that. Uh, the temptation is going to be for many people to just try to become self-reliant, but for themselves only. And so he gives this example of uh, Henry David Thoreau, and he he's you know he goes out and he builds this cabin, uh, and uh, C. R. Wiley critiques him because he's he borrows the tools. He's not grateful. He doesn't recognize that man. A lot of work went into even giving you the tools to be able to go out and and become you know, a prepper and self-reliant. And I actually right. looked up this dude on YouTube, Dick Pronicky, that he mentions, uh, who's out there oh, in yeah. Alaska. He says he single-handedly, you know, built a cabin in the wilderness and then lived alone in it for the next 30 years. I think, man, that's mad lonely. <laughs> I actually looked him up on YouTube and it's, it's pretty, pretty interesting yeah. stuff. Um, and he says, uh, compared to Pronicky, Thoreau was a Thoreau was a sissy, <laughs> but even Pronicky was never truly alone. He took the traditions of woodcraft and wilderness survival with him. Mm. Uh, and, and he concludes this section by saying, uh, well, we can't live without others, at least not for very long. Our shelters should be large enough to include other people. Right. So that's what the rest of this book is going to be about, not just building a shelter where you have your cabin in the woods with your canned food, or even that you acquire just the skills to be self-sufficient. Oh, those are good things. Mm. But if it only is looking out for yourself, mm. I mean, there's nothing really Christian about that. There's nothing fruitful and multiplying about that. It's kind of just saying, I want to protect myself from from these elements, but it's not looking out for your neighbor. And I really appreciated that kind of uh, warning and critique because I think a lot of guys yeah. who do have that kind of rugged individualist mindset, which can be very attractive, mm-hmm. uh, we need to, to think not in terms of just how can I provide for myself, what skills do I need to right. uh, acquire? But how can I build a shelter that can include other people? Right. Uh, just maybe to hop in on that, it, it seems like the danger there is that the man would try to separate the idea of building a household from its end. Mm-hmm. Right. We talked about with um, Solomon says God created Adam for work and for wife. Yeah. And uh, Wiley's going to talk a lot more about that in terms of 
you know, household, like what is it even for? He talks about it actually in, in his other book you mentioned too, the the end for which humanity is going. Yeah. Um, so we try to, you know, we separate from the end. Yeah. That's never good. Yeah, he gives this really fun story about the three little pigs and he goes meta on, on it. I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, what's, why is he telling the three little pigs story? So if you remember this, uh, first pig built a straw house, second built one of sticks, the last made his house with bricks. And he basically says, uh, there is this invisible fourth house that allowed the pigs to make wolf stew. So um, if you know the story, the wolf blows the first two down, the little pigs run to the brick house. And a lot of people just think this is all about building materials. You know, you should yeah. just build with bricks, build with strong Touch materials. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but Sierra Wiley is saying, if you really think about it, you'll see that this is a story about a fourth house, an invisible one. What is it? The brotherhood that shelters the pigs in the end. Hmm. And I thought, okay, I've never thought deeply about the three <laughs> little Come on, man. pigs. <laughs> and this is something that I've heard uh, Sierra Wiley uh, preach and talk about is we are, we need to become one another's uh, shelters for, you know, uh, we are uh, social security for each other. Mm -hmm. That was uh, before we, we outsourced it to the state, who was the one who was taking care of elderly parents? Who was the one who was educating the children? These are things that were part of a productive household that provided shelter, not just for you know, mom, dad, and the kids, but even for el the elderly uh, parents and even strangers and sojourners. Uh, and then he gives us this example of Abraham. And I always love this when I'm reading through Genesis, where it says in Genesis 14, 14, that in Abraham's household, he could muster over 300 fighting men. <laughs> so you think... That's an enormous household. So uh, he makes this dis distinction on page XVII. Uh, you can be a member of a household without being a member of a family. You can even be a member of a family without belonging to a household. A household can even include more than one family. It can also grow quite large. Yeah. And then he cites Abraham as the example. And so this is, I think, a wonderful vision of what a godly household a godly patriarch looks like. And I think Job would be one of these other wonderful examples in scripture where Job is not just a really wealthy man, mm. but he's kind of the king of, of, of the region. Uh, he provides, he executes justice. There's this great verse later on where he, de he describes what his life was like. Mm. And he says, you know, when I would arise, the young men, the young rascals would tremble in fear. They'd get out of his way. People would stand and honor, honor him. He would break the jaw of the wicked. He would rescue uh, the innocent. He would uh, do righteousness as a ruler. And you think, okay, that's what a godly patriarch does. He uses his power, his authority, and his strength to protect the innocent and to destroy, break the jaw of the wicked. I love that, that verse. Right, so having kind of set up the dilemma, right, okay, where are we in society? We're living in a society that is falling apart at the seams, we've outsourced our shelter, and we have lost an, a, a biblical but almost even a natural understanding of what a house and a household is. He says, okay, we're going to go back, okay, step one. How do you build a household? What are the foundations of it? And he actually, he, when he sets up his, just at the end of the introduction, he's going to give you the, 
progression. The first section deals with how a household is established and then goes on to describe its basic framework. Um, which, so he begins by talking about covenants. And covenants is sort of a foreign way to think about um, agreements nowadays. You know, people in the church, we, we kind of have this, we still have this language, right? And even in the American church, the new covenant, old covenant. Um, but when we, when we think about our business arrangements, when we think about even agreements that we make, we don't think about it in this very visceral way. So he talks about the ancient kind of idea of a blood covenant. Yeah. So we, we think of a covenant, we think, oh, you sign a document, you sign your work agreement, you shake hands, and yeah. okay, it's your word. Um, and, and there are still penalties and that sort of thing. But he kind of says, well, that's nothing compared to the ancient Near East idea of a covenant. So he gives the example of, um, I'm trying to find out where it is. Um, so he mentions actually the example of Abraham, right, in Genesis, I think it's 15, yeah. when God comes to Abraham to make a covenant with him. And there's a lot of blood involved, yeah. a lot of animals that are sacrificed. And this was representative of how they made these agreements. And the point was to say, um, if I don't, if I do not adhere to my word, if you can't rely on me, depend on me um, for the, this protection, this shelter, yeah. to hold up my end of the bargain, then may it be done to me what it was done to these animals. Yeah. And it may seem strange to start there, right? So what do you make of that? Like, why start there with this idea of blood and covenants when we're talking about building a household. Yeah, he talks about the idea of the wilderness, which is this major theme if you just read like fairy stories. The wilderness is is the wild. Anything could happen to you. And in many ways, we don't have any concept of the wilderness now. He says we actually protect, you know, we have wilderness protection. We we mm -hmm. protect the wilderness now. <laughs> that that's what the national parks. Yeah, and, that's what yeah. industrialization has done. Uh, but he says, you know, if you just like leave your phone behind and you're out there in places where it is really like this, where a yeah. rival gang could just come and, and kidnap you, uh, you need some kind of bond right. of treaty or protection or uh, you know solemn covenant that is going to ensure shelter. If some if someone comes against you, and I love what he says on page six. So he says, you know, imagine uh, some Midianites are coming your way because a plague of locusts has wiped out their crops, and your neighbor between them and you calls for help. What could possibly keep you from turning the other way and running for your life? A handshake, perhaps. If you are an, an exceptionally principled man, know what you need to steal your nerves at that moment is the threat of blood vengeance. Hmm. And that's what the covenant promised. And you think, yeah, what, what would cause you to give even your life? You're risking your life, your whole family's life, everything that you have to come to the aid of someone you've made covenant with. Well, you better remember what was done to those animals, the blood sacrifice that was there, the feast you had, and you want it to go both ways. And there would be a great violation if, if you didn't show up. Right. There, then someone could take blood vengeance on you for violating the covenant. Right. And so uh, this is a huge Christian theme. And this is also where uh, we get to now the seriousness of the covenant of marriage. And one of the questions I was thinking about as I read this was, okay, we don't have these kinds of blood covenants. Uh, Especially at a marriage. Right? Yeah. yeah. And that's very, you know. Yeah, but yeah. So what has what has replaced those? Well, I think that's really fascinating. If you think about prior to Christ 
and you think about the relationships of the nations and the wars that all the Gentiles have. Think about the Trojan Wars mm -hmm. and the Iliad and Peloponnesian. Uh, and that was kind of the big problem is that there was always more blood to be shed. Yeah. There was never any way to drop the hatchet because in a society that doesn't have atonement, that doesn't have um, an offering to make peace between these two uh, wronged people who wronged one another, yeah. then what do you have? Just the constant cry out for vengeance. It's just vengeance, vengeance, vengeance. Which is why you have in the Old Testament these laws against the avenger, right? So if you were guilty of manslaughter, Right, which you know, uh, you know, say you're chopping, yeah. <laughs> you're chopping down a tree, and the axe head flings off, and it hits a guy, and he dies. Um, and their relatives want to claim your life. There were cities of protection, cities of refuge, where you would go to be protected and shielded from yeah. the blood guilt. Yeah. And but if you don't have that, then it's sort of the cycle of vengeance, the Furies. If you go to yeah. the ancient Greek um, sort of tradition there. Uh, and so what you have after Christ comes is the introduction of an atonement, uh, the, the bloodless, in, if you will, sacrifice, the, blood, the bloodless uh, reconciliation, because Christ was the, blood, the bloody one. Yeah. Um, and so I think that would be, it's a kind of a rabbit trail, but to, just to your question of, okay, um, it highlights the need for some kind of atonement to be made. Yeah. If anything, it just raises the stakes on the seriousness of the the agreement there. And so I think framing uh, marriage with this kind of covenantal idea, you know, when a lot of people get married, uh, they would treat it like just a piece of paper. And he actually talks about this in his little yeah, curmudgeon yeah. side thing on shacking up. You know, the guy who says, hey, man, a marriage license is just a piece of paper. What's the big deal? And then he responds, well, if it's just a piece of paper, why not humor everyone and get one? Right. It's like, how many people do we know that are just living together? They don't actually get married because, and, and the response is, you know, married, like. Just a construct. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's just like, we're basically the same it's the same relationship, just yeah. you're adding a title. Yeah, and it's like, well, if it is no big deal, then why don't you do it, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so there's there's these major misunderstandings of even what marriage is and a major misunderstanding about even what a covenant mm. bond is. And the covenant elevates everything because mm. you are now swearing a promise that if you break, brings down a curse. But mm. if you keep it, it, it creates blessing. Right. Is it, and, and so he's going to say that that is the kind of uh, structure. If you're thinking about it in terms of framing a house, you don't frame a house out of straw. Right. Mm. You want you want to frame a house out of, you know, ideally, whatever the strongest material you can have, you know, whether these are just two by fours or yeah. whether it's bricks or whatever it is. But uh, if, if marriage is the framework for the household, it needs to be a strong covenant holding it together. Mm. And the the kind of obvious example of this falling apart is when there's a divorce. Right. What does it do? Some would call it it's just the death of a little civilization. It is the destruction of a household when there is a divorce. That's because that covenant, that thing that is supposed to be the most stable protection is gone. Mm. Can you imagine living in a house that has no framing? What happens yeah. when the storms come, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, it's it's going to fall down. Yeah. Here's a few other uh, just kind of, I would want to say maybe like proverbial things I wanted to talk about in this in this 
chapter. He says, what is the cure for chronological snobbery? <laughs> and he goes to C.S. Lewis and he says, you know, reading old books with sympathy and imagination. And one of the things he wants to do here is say that just because we've made technological progress does not necessarily mean that we have progressed as a, as a race or as a nation, as a people. In many ways, technological progress, he says, can mask regression in other areas. And then the example he cites is the lack of respect for people in our time. Right. Progress is not a conveyor belt powered by time. And then he gives us the premise of the book. He says, if our problems rhyme with problems faced by people in the past, maybe the solutions do. Hmm. And right now we're kind of uh, in America as uh, people are tearing down monuments and you know wanting to rewrite or retell history, arguing against the sort of what is it the nuclear family, right? Yeah. The heteronormative yeah. principle, trying to tear that apart. Yeah. So they're trying to to tear that down, and so we want. Uh, and one of the things that they'll do is they will say, well, they were they were slave owners, they were colonizers, they were this or that, and there's just all these built-in assumptions that that's a bad thing. Right. That colonization is like inherently immoral. That right. we should have just left the Indians to roam and kill one another. They, exactly. they have these false images of what America was like before uh, the noble savage. Yeah. Right? No, really, like the Rousseauian, oh, it was better off before you had civilization. Yeah, and when you actually read the history of, you know, the early pilgrims arriving there, it's like, these Indians are not, like, all at peace together. No. You have these blood feuds, and many of them become allies, friends with the pilgrims, and and there's a covenant or a, a treaty between them, and one of the major issues that they had was how do we keep peace with, with the Indians? And then you have troublemakers, both on the, the pilgrim side, colonizer side, and on the Indian side. So Right. Uh, he, he says this thing on the side. Uh, he has these little personalities that chime in here. And this is the philosopher. He says, when it comes to looking to the past for help, some assume that to praise the part is to praise the whole. Why should it? You can be selective. Making distinctions is a mark of intelligence. Mm. Use judgment. Discriminate. Sort the wheat from the chaff, the good from the bad. Mm. And I think that is such an indictment on the way we do history today. We have no honor for the people who, uh, you know, got us here. Our fathers. Yeah, yeah, we have no gratitude. We just want to uh, uh, tar them and feather them as, you know, these evil uh, slave masters who mm -hmm. were so regressive and then they want to scapegoat Christianity as the the reason for it. Right. And, and Sarah Wiley saying, you know, we can look at the past and actually make distinctions and say, yeah, that actually was wrong. These were some real failings. And when you look at the way scripture, especially a chapter like Hebrews 11, talks about, you know, figures in the Old Testament, you know, many of whom were very uh, wicked men or had major moral failings, um, but God forgave them. And David would be like the prime example of this that Paul gives. Here's someone who murdered one of his, you know, righteous, righteous Uriah, takes his wife and so forth. Yeah, that was a sinful thing. There's temporal judgment for it. But David is still, you know, we still name our children David. Yeah. Because He's, he's a righteous man that was justified by God, and he wrote a bunch of psalms. So there's ways where we can be discriminative and say, yeah, what David did was evil, mm -hmm. but we still 
honor him, just like we honor Abraham, despite his right. failings as well. Yeah. It's, all, it, it's also, we find ourselves, with the measure with which you judge, you yourself will be judged. In, in doing this, what we're also doing is showing we don't have a lot of humility. We're showing that we have a higher view of ourselves than we ought. If anyone thinks he is wise, like, let him watch himself. And, yeah. you know, we even talked about with Proverbs being wise in our own eyes. How many things are we going to be judged for, you know, on that same sort of standard, on that same sort of basis, yeah. right? Is a generation 100 years from now going to look back at the woke movement or look back at the transgender movement and say, oh, they were so, you know... They, they were on the right side of history, or, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or they were on the wrong side of history because yeah. basically you're just you're giving the reins over to the mob, to whoever's loud at the time, and only to be torn down 100, 150 years later. Yeah. So he, he goes through covenants and then talks about marriage and says that marriage is where you should begin. And he kind of ends with this, <laughs> I thought, the last, <laughs> the last sentence in this, uh, chapter is you will learn the true meaning of love and uh, backing up right before that he says if you long for a greater measure of control over the things that bear most directly upon you a house of your own is the only way to go but you must do your building in a world filled with people who will not understand what you are doing right. and the champions of safety in numbers may even question the legitimacy of it but if the members of your house are truly bound together you will all be better off for it and you will learn the sweet and the bitter of faithfulness and sacrifice you will learn the true meaning of love and that is exactly what marriage and building uh, you know that's exactly what a covenant is it's right. it's love in spite of your feelings it also means there's great risk of betrayal of great pain and that's why a lot of people don't do it right why do why does a couple not get married and just shack up and you know kind of play house together it's because they're afraid of what could actually actually come but he says if you want to build a shelter you got to start with marriage Marriage is the place. Um, do you have any thoughts on uh, marriage as the kind of foundational shelter? And then what kind of comments or questions we might have for people who are not married? Yeah. Man, there's a lot we you know here. <laughs> I think I think start by getting back to what you mentioned earlier about a lot of the dangers. Of, men can be really attracted to this idea of self-sufficiency and building your own household, right? And sort of taking dominion over your life. But he says right here, we have arrived. This is the foundation of a household. And it's not, I've got my ducks in a row, I've got my finances in a row, I have, I have built a shelter. It's the wedding day. Yeah. Um, so I think, one, that, that's just to your point of what you mentioned about that. This, th not separating the end from what we're made for. And then two, I think we could, this sends us all the way back to the, the garden. What is one of the first things that God did? So... So he made Adam, and then he said it was not good for him to be alone. So he made Eve, and then he had a wedding. One of the first organizational, er, institutional arrangement, arrangements that happened was a, a wedding. Yeah. Well, Man of the House is the book by C.R. Wiley, and uh, next episode we'll be going through chapter two. And do we have a cool, are we going to change the sign-off for, uh, for, as we change <laughs> build, the book? So, build that house? Yeah, build, build that. Whatever you do this week, build that, build that house. That's a question. That, do we, oh, oh, yeah, that, 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 oh, I thought you were doing it. Um, I guess, yeah. We really do need a better one. Yeah. Um, build that house, get to work. 
get to work. Yeah, I don't know. You say let's get to work in the beginning. So if you're like, pick up your hammer. I don't know. Ugh. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll, we'll keep, we'll keep, wor we'll really, keep working on it. If you, you have gotta, suggestions for us, you gotta send it our way. Let us know. All right, until next time, build that build house. That house. <laughs>